Psalm 121 verse 1 tells us, I will lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth. If I ask someone to help me who could only make something very minute, something very fragile, something very average, then I wouldn't feel like I'm getting very good help. (laughs) When I read in the scripture that my help cometh from the Lord, Adonai, the Lord, the sovereign one, and it says there that the Lord made heaven and earth. And the one who makes heaven and earth, if he can make heaven and earth, well, I can be rested assured that he can help. And there's nothing that I can go through that God can't help in. And so remember that while we pray for one another, we pray for ourselves often, that uh, there is a throne of grace where we can find uh, mercy, obtain mercy, and we find grace to help in time of need. So I want to look at the thought this morning, oh, this morning, it's not morning, is it? It's evening. <laughs> uh, this evening um, of our gaze into heaven. Yes. My oh, brother, good. Is it on? I'll press the button. No? Press the other side. Come and do it for me, brother. Uh, Would you turn to Isaiah chapter 6? Our gaze into heaven, that's the idea, that's the... uh, the theme that sort of follows through in the different scriptures we want to look at tonight. It was our privilege to last week, I think it was just last week, yes it was, the MBF meeting, was that last week or the week before? I can't recall now, every day is a bit of a... (laughs) Uh, But it was a privilege to be there in South Australia in Murray, Murray, Murray Bridge for the National Baptist Fellowship meeting and the theme there was um, the holiness of God and uh, there were many sermons which were real encouragement there and uh, God-honouring and, uh, and true to the scriptures. And uh, so the message today has to do with some gleanings from there as well as a sermon that I did bring, but it's not the same sermon. It's very changed, uh, but yet I believe it's going to meet the need uh, that we have. May God bless you in the reading of the word. Let's start to read God's word and then we will pray and then we will continue. So Isaiah chapter 6 verse... One, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings, and twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah's response to the vision that he saw, the vision of heaven, Isaiah says to this effect, um, Then said I, 
Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, of, the, 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 King the Lord of hosts. Father, I pray that you will bless your word to our understanding and to our edification this evening. We don't deserve to ask such things. But I pray, Lord, that you'd be merciful. And I know that you are gracious. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet needs and help us to rise to higher ground as we turn our faces from looking down and from looking around uh, to looking upward and have our gaze, Lord, have our focus on things above, we pray. This, this evening we ask your blessing and we ask these favours in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look also to Colossians chapter 3, I think it's a good time to introduce that verse, Colossians chapter 3. Just in verse 1, it says, If ye then be risen with Christ, that is, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are blood-washed, there was a time and a place where you accepted Christ as your Saviour. If ye be then risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Amen. And the emphasis there should be in that, in that uh, little bit of a passage, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Amen? And that's our problem at times. We've got to get those things right. You know, we've got to, get the base, we've got to make the basic things the basic things. And that is get our eyes on the, on the, off the earthly, off the horizontal and start looking vertical. Um, in whatever aspects, whatever challenges, whatever uh, uh, triumphs, whatever we go through down here, uh, yet have our affections, our heart affections uh, to things that are above. Because the things that are above are the things that are going to count for all eternity. Isaiah had a problem. It says in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1 there, it starts by saying that the king is dead. The king is dead, but, the God, in, but God in heaven is alive. That was, that was Isaiah's summary. As Isaiah looked at the circumstances of Israel um, for, I forget how many years he served, uh, 52 years he served King King Uzziah, who was on the most part a godly king in Israel, and um, at the age of 68, he died, a leper. And he uh, left um, the people of God in some despair. Uh, they would look around and they would scratch their heads and they would start to wonder and they would think, 
what is going to happen to us now. Because under that king, King Uzziah, things were good. And things were good only because um, it was a good king. And he led, him to God, that he led the nation to godly things. And the nation experienced a holy outlook on life. And as a result, the nation was stable. But when the holiness would go, and when the godliness would go, then the instability came. And so when King Uzziah died, it was a bit of a trouble. It was a little bit of a calamity. And even for Isaiah, um, uh, that was what he was facing. He was disillusioned in this great godly uh, king um, and, he, uh, and his death. And he would be saying to himself, where is the Lord in all of this? What are we going to do now? And it seems like God has now forgotten us. There's not much hope in his voice. And God has forgotten our, our people. Um, it seems like God has advocated his, his position. <clears throat> but the resounding answer in Isaiah chapter 6 there is that no, God has not advocated his throne. Because in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And so Isaiah's gaze was on heaven. Isaiah's focus was not on earthly things, but things above. And he saw the Lord high, very high, and lifted up. Would you turn to another passage, a similar vision, just to put us in the right setting of this vision of Isaiah uh, toward the throne of God. So Revelation chapter 4, the last book in your Bible, Revelation chapter 4. This is not a different throne. This is a different vision. This is a different person, a different age, a different time. But the throne, but the but a vision, however, of the same throne. Isaiah chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show you things which must be hereafter. So the Apostle John here is ushered in his vision. He's ushered from an earthly position to a heavenly position. He's, as it were, transported from earth to heaven. And he would have a window into what heaven looks like. A, a wonderful passage for us. Uh, that John gives us here. And we can learn a little bit of what heaven is like. Uh, verse, verse 2. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne 
was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in, in, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty elders. Uh, they're the twenty-four elders which we believe to not be angels but to be, uh, to be the, the redeemed church of Christ in heaven the four and twenty elders, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of, bur- of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. That's the Holy Spirit of God and his ministry before the throne. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And these four beasts full of eyes before and behind are the same beasts or the same seraphims which were there in Isaiah chapter 6, which was the vision of Isaiah. These are incredible, powerful, uh, created seraphims in heaven, and their sole reason for their existence is to be there before the throne of God in, in continual eternal worship. I'll just read verse 7 again. And the beast was like, an, sorry, and the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the, fir- and the third beast had a face as a man, And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honour and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, The four and the twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and they worship him that liveth forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. I have three basic points this evening. The throne of God is authoritative. The throne of God is a place of worship. And the throne of God is holy. And it's the throne of God that we set our eyes, our gaze toward. When things are hard and difficult and we're disillusioned and uh, things become very heavy, then the scriptures teach us that in the environment of heaviness, rejoicing can also be there. First Peter chapter one, verse six, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be. Ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. 
and that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, it might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And so we can greatly rejoice in the, he- with, in the heaviness of manifold temptations. Isaiah's vision and John's vision was the throne of God, but it it wasn't really the throne of God that they had their eyes fixed on. It was God Almighty, God the Father on the throne. And both of them give the statement, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty or the Lord of hosts who is who was and is and is to come. And Isaiah's vision looked forward. He looked forward to the holiness of God which one day would impact upon the whole earth. And his statement was, the whole earth is full of his glory. You see, because the holiness of God produces glory for God. Nothing else produces glory. God's holiness and God's glory are two different things. God's glory is the manifestation of God's holiness. And so when God's holiness is manifested, when God's holiness is made public, then God is glorified. And Isaiah could say the whole earth is full of his glory. But that's not now. That's in a time to come when the Lord Jesus Christ will appear once again to this earth and will establish a righteous and holy kingdom when then the whole earth will be full of his glory. That's a wonderful time to come. And our eyes ought to be fixed on that. So when the Bible tells us to fix our gaze or, or, to, or to center on things above rather than things on the earth, we need to be thinking forward. Upward, yes, but forward to a time of his appearing, his glorious appearing. When one day he, was, he will come and all the filth and the soot and the muck that we experience today, that we have to put up today in our faces. You watch the news lately? We'll be gone. And only the glory and only the holiness and the righteousness of God will be the focus of all eternity. And all the hosts of heaven and the whole earth, this whole earth, will be full of his glory.
the passage in, in Revelation is interesting in that it's, if, we, if we just go there, I'll just start to make, make mention of some, some things there in Revelation 4. Firstly, it says there that there was a door opened in heaven. And I'm glad that there's a door open in heaven. And Isaiah had, that's not Isaiah, John had the privilege of seeing that door open in heaven. Because of the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, mentioned in chapter 5, uh, making it possible for a door to be opened in heaven. For all those who would put their faith and trust in him. For us, there is a door open in heaven. And John says, and the first voice which I heard was as, as of a trumpet talking with me. And that's the first thing he hears in heaven. And the first, uh, that's the first voice, and the first thing he hears in heaven is, come up hither. Come up hither. And I will show you things that are going to happen hereafter. And it's interesting to note that in the first three chapters of Revelation, uh, uh, the church is in focus. And it speaks there of the uh, churches of Asia, uh, representative of churches through the ages, and representative of uh, a, a type of churches in any age. And after chapter 3, there's no more mention of the church in the book of Revelation. And it's interesting to note that at the very beginning of Revelation chapter 4, now that we come to chapter 4, John the Apostle is ushered to heaven in a vision. To give us a strong hint, some will say not even a hint, (laughs) that the church is being called up to heaven, giving us a vision of one day the church will be ushered or transported from this place to a place in heaven. We call that the blessed hope, the rapture, the catching up of the church. See, the language is very similar to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, where it says, For the Lord himself shall descend with the, uh, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The church is called up to heaven. Not to be mentioned again in the book of Revelation until we come to chapter 19. And then we see there the church mentioned as the bride of Christ in this marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19. And so, brethren, don't let anyone tell you that the church is going to be around during a time of tribulation or even halfway through the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation, you know. No, we're not appointed unto wrath and let's get that word wrath right. Revelation and its, and its chronology tells us very clearly 
The church is there, the church is gone, and the church is there in glory after it. So chapter 4 and chapter 5 speaks of heaven. And the main theme there we see is the throne. There is a throne set in heaven. The throne was seen in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 26 where it says, And above the firmament and uh, that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne and the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was, like, was the likeness as of the appearance of a man above and upon it. Ezekiel 1.8b says when, uh, when, when transcribing to the, uh, sorry, when describing the throne of God in a vision, it says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Stephen in the New Testament, Stephen the martyr, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts there, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 55, he sees the throne in heaven where he says, it says there, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, he looked up steadfastly into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Stephen saw the throne of God and it gave him great peace in that time where he was being massacred. Using the throne as a focal uh, point we can easily understand the arrangement of this chapter, chapter 4. When considering the throne that was, was, was not in sight in the first three chapters of Revelation, now in chapter 4, um, which, by the way, chapter 4 starts the prophetical outlook in Revelation. Prophecies start to come out. We see the throne mentioned 12 times and very prominently. Um, as a throne for worship. One person said that from chapter 4 onward, the revelation becomes the book of the throne and the word throne appearing 46 times. The throne was not seen in the time of Adam in the garden. Later in Psalm 29, in verse 10, the throne is mentioned when um, highlighting the time of the flood. It says there that the Lord sitteth upon the flood. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. Jehovah sat king as king at the flood. But at the, but at the flood, the throne of God was used there as a throne for judgment, not for worship. And so we'll see that interchangeably that there is only one throne in heaven. There has only been one throne in heaven. There will only ever be one throne in heaven and one person on the throne who will never advocate the throne. And that one throne will be um, a throne of worship, but from that very throne will come the, the very um, justice of God portrayed in the judgments that he'll execute. The throne is nowhere seen in the times of Adam and the patriarchs. For they were walking by simple faith. And that's what God calls us to do today. Yes, there's a throne in heaven that we can gaze at. But we walk by faith. And so the, the, uh, uh, Abraham and the patriarchs were not connected with the manifested throne, but they built altars for worship. And today we have a place where we gather for worship. All right. 
when God brought Israel through Egypt, he had a nation for his name. And he dwelt among them by sitting above the cherubim. Remember that? But he, he sat above the cherubim in that place, the Ark of the Covenant, which was a type of the throne of God on high. And it, and it was a, a holy place. And so God's throne is a place of holiness. Today the throne of God for us is known as the throne of grace. Amen? The throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4 verse six, or 14 to 16. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That is, he is, he is in knowledge and he, is, um, he has gone through the feelings that we go through, the infirmities that we go through, the heaviness that we go through. He can relate to that. There's nothing that, um, uh, uh, that we are going through that he's not aware of. We're so fickle sometimes, we think God is not aware of things that we're aware of. Anyone? No one puts their hand up. You're all liars. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, on that basis, on the fact that there is, a, there is the Lord Jesus Christ in he- ascended on high in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and he is known as our great high priest. And in that position, in that office in heaven, on that basis, we can go to him in prayer. That's why the Bible reads there, there uh, uh, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. That's why we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy and find help in time of need. Sorry, and find grace to help in time of need. We need grace to help. We don't think we need grace to help, but we need grace to help in time of need. And when needs come, don't go to the internet. Don't go to the television to relax yourself, because that won't really relax you. (laughs) Uh, uh, Don't go to your bank account and see, well, if there's enough there to meet the need. Don't go to that one who has a strong and mighty arm who normally you'll turn to because he's got the answers. Go, don't go to a boyfriend or a girlfriend and think, well, you know, they're going to meet the need. But when, when there's a need, go to the throne of grace in that time of need. And God will meet the very need at that very time. And it amazes me how God meets the needs At the very times. So the throne is a throne of grace. So the throne that Isaiah saw, high and lifted up, 
And the throne also, the same throne, which the Apostle John saw, was the, the throne that we know as the throne of grace. And we need to set our gaze upon God in heaven and the throne of grace. That's why, brethren, sometimes we say in times of calamity, God's on the throne. That's why we say that little statement sometimes. Perhaps sometimes we may flippantly say it. But when we say God is on the throne, that is an unchanging eternal reality. God is always on the throne. He's always been on the throne. He'll always remain on the throne. Unlike earthly thrones, he will never advocate his throne. The throne of God is authoritative. The vision is of God sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15 tells us, For thus saith the high and lofty one, he is the high and superior one with all authority. That's what it means to be the high and lofty one. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. That's his name. God has chosen to have a name and his name is holy. He didn't say his name is faithful. He didn't say his name is wisdom or his name is power or any other attribute. But he chose his name to be holy. And when these two, when these two visions that we have before us, when they look upon the throne of God, what do they see? They see the God of heaven in his holiness. I saw the Lord high uh, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim and his train filled. Let's, let's stop there. His train filled the temple. So Isaiah, he goes to the temple and he sees this vision and he sees the vision of God in heaven and he, and he, and he realises that the train of God fills the temple. It just, just didn't go down the aisle. It, it filled the whole temple. I'm reminded of Queen Elizabeth in 1953 at her coronation when she was made queen. She had a train. A train is a, the train of her robe. And it speaks of the, the longer the train the greater the majesty, the greater the authority, the greater hold, <laughs> the greater power. Her train was about, well, I didn't actually measure it. I wasn't there, but it took six ladies to hold it. It was about 10 metres long. It's a pretty long train. When brides come to the altar to get married, sometimes they'll have a train and they'll have the bridesmaids if they're good bridesmaids, look after the train. <laughs> but God's throne, uh, God's train filled the temple. It speaks of his ultimate majesty. 
And above this throne stood the seraphims. Each had six wings. And with twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. One cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. When I think of the angels, these, these incredible seraphims, six-winged seraphims, I think, why did they have six wings? Well, we're told that two wings covered the, the eyes. And most commentators, and I think it'd be true, that it's because of the radiating glory of God. His holiness is so piercing that it changes a man. It even changes the angels and they cover their eyes. And with the other two, they cover their feet. They covered their naked feet before, before a holy throne out of humility and respect. And if the angels would exercise respect and humility and worship, I believe we ought to as well. When we come to worship, it shouldn't be done flippantly or casually or worldly, but reverently and in humility, covering our feet. You can draw a lot of applications from that. God on his throne has all authority. And we don't call God into question or we don't shake fist, our fist at God. And we don't ask God questions, why are you doing this, God, when you're doing this? We don't give him authority or right to do anything. He has all authority. He is in total authority and control. So when we say God is on his throne, we better believe that. Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10 says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God's in control. God's on the throne. Our gaze ought to be to him. We may weep at times when God takes a loved one, a child, a spouse. But we don't question, we don't dare question his right to do so. In other words, faith looks forward in hope. And faith looks past the calamity for the blessing that lies in that God is in control. He is the supreme court of the universe and, and in him there's no appeal. God is on the throne. And this throne is also a place of worship. Worship of the creator. We see that in chapter 4 of Revelation there. Um, and in chapter 5 of Revelation we see the worship of the redeemer, the slain lamb of God of the, uh, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah is mentioned. The Lord Jesus Christ is there in chapter 5 of Revelation. 
and he's seated at the right hand of God there. We're told that he's standing there and he takes the sealed book from God the Father and he alone, with great authority given to him and no other in the universe, is allowed and is given authority to open that book of judgment. And he is worshipped there in chapter 5 as the Redeemer. God's throne is not a successive throne. It is the throne of one sovereign forever and ever and ever. One sovereign. Earthly kings come and go. But the Lord remains sovereign. Isaiah, when he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. That word Lord, you can mark it in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. I saw the Lord. That's the word Adonai, meaning the sovereign one. So Isaiah saw the sovereign one. God, God the Father never ascended to the throne. He has always been there. He created all things from his throne and now he receives in Revelation chapter 4, we see that. <clears throat> he receives worthy worship as creator from the hosts of heaven. The impact of creation is important. The hosts of heaven worship him as creator. We notice the created hosts of heaven, they worship the creator rather than the creature, which is the opposite here. People here on earth, they worship the creature rather than the creator. And horrible creatures. Ever been to India or <coughs> Mauritius <laughs> or other places where there's a lot of idol worship? I mean, you have it in Australia as well, but not so prominent. And these creatures are horrible, and yet they worship the creature rather than the creator. The minds are blinded. But in heaven, it's the opposite. And it would be wonderful one day to be no more, of, no more idolatry, just the king of heaven, and they'll be worshipped only to the creator. Such unity. They worship him with a hymn, giving honour to, to his holiness. Isaiah there in, in, in Isaiah 6, um, one man said that the greatest hymn in the Bible is mentioned. And these angels, they sing the greatest hymn to the Lord, singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. greatest hymn is mentioned there. They sing this hymn in heaven over and over. It says day and night. It's not literally day and night. We know the Bible says there's no night in heaven, but they continually worship him. Does that say something to you about worship? Does that, does that highlight to you the importance of worship? And I haven't touched on it yet. We're getting to it but holiness which accompanies worship. 
because you can't separate it. And when we have holiness in our worship, then God is glorified. Remember, holiness produces glory. And we, when we have holiness in the life, God is glorified. There's no rest from these incredible six-winged seraphims, these beasts who give glory and honour and thanks to him that eternally sits on the throne. But we're also mentioned, um, apart from these angels, they're joined by other created beings, clothed in white raiment. So that's chapter 9 in Revelation chapter 4. Sorry, Revelation chapter 4, verse 9. It talks, it says there, And when those beasts give glory and honour and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, they're joined by others. Verse 10. The four and twenty elders fall down. You see the posture? There's a posture of humility. It's not this posture. It's humility. It's not about me. Or the victory I'm having. You see that? That's not worship. Celebrating my victories. Worship is not about me. And it's not about you. So don't get up here singing about you. Or preaching about you. We worship the creator, not the creature. And these four and twenty elders, which I'd mentioned earlier, are not are unlikely to be angels, but very likely, and I believe they are, the ransomed church of God. That is the church, which exists on earth today, one day will be in heaven. Known here as the 24 elders. Okay, exactly how we come to that, well, who really knows? Are they representative of the whole church? Possibly. Um, but they are the church of God. They are ransomed. They are the bride of Christ. And they do something very odd. They display a humble sacrificial worship by launching back their rewards to God. I mean, God has rewarded them for what we do today. God rewards us. And we see in heaven that we just launch back these rewards, these golden crowns that we have, and we just launch them back to the throne because we, we realise the impact before the throne. Our hymn, I don't know if you sing it here, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Do you know that hymn? Um, it says, The bright eyes, not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face, I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And that's what happens here. 
church, the, those who are redeemed in heaven, they give back their rewards, their crowns before the throne. <coughs> we don't have much more to give. <coughs> so the throne is a throne of worship. And however important the throne of God is, To someone, please. <coughs> However important the throne of God is, we've looked at the throne of God is authoritative. We've looked at the throne of God is a place of worship. Um, it is His holiness by which God desires to be remembered. That's why Isaiah 6 mentions in the worship scene, mentions holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then repeated by John, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God wishes to be remembered by what I believe is his chief attribute, his holiness. the attribute which most glorifies him. Because remember, from his holiness um, comes out his glory. And God is glorified when we are holy. That's how he chooses to glorify himself. And we'll end with a verse that will highlight that in First Peter later. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I'll quote from William Evans. He's a Christian author. Thank you. William Evans, he wrote the book, um, The Great Doctrines of the Bible. I remember 30 years ago, I did it in Bible College, at SBBC Bible College. By the way, that's a good Bible college. If you want to go to one, you can go to that Bible college. Sorry, Pastor, I don't know about if you agree with that. But still good. still have that book, The Great, Bi- the Great Doctrines of the Bible. And um, <clears throat> William Evans, the author, he, he says that the holiness of God is the message of the entire Old Testament. It's a message of the entire Old Testament. And you see his holiness come through as a, as a focal point in all the stories. <clears throat> we learned this morning in the message that uh, Reuben, the firstborn of... Uh, of the sons of Jacob, he dishonoured his father in, in, in defiling his father's bed with uh, one of the, I think it was Bilhah. And uh, as a result of that, he suffered great loss. He never amounted to anything, Reuben. And his father Jacob said to him, you are as unstable as water. You're my firstborn, yes, but you'll amount to nothing now. Why? Because he lived a life in unholiness. And, and his life, for the rest of his life, he was unstable. Do a search, do a study on Reuben, you'll find there's nothing good that comes out of his line. The holiness of God being the message of the entire Old Testament.
William Evans also says this. He says, our view, and you can, if you're taking notes or even if you're not, this is a good quote, and, it, and I believe this. This is a good quote. Our view of the necessity of the atonement will depend very largely upon our view of the holiness of God. Light views of God and his holiness will produce light views of sin and the atonement. That's the problem churches have today. I'm not talking about necessarily about our churches of like faith, but I'm talking about in general, <clears throat> where the holiness of God is just in obscurity. You know, we're talking carnal churches and the holiness of God is nowhere to be seen and it will only give a light view towards sin and a distorted view of the atonement. So our view of the necessity of the atonement and the atonement of Christ is necessary for salvation and there's no other way to salvation through the atoning blood of Christ whatever John MacArthur wants to say. Um, our view of the necessity of the atonement will depend largely upon our view of the holiness of God. What's your view of the holiness of God? How do you view God? And to put it differently, how, what is it you believe about God? What do you believe about God? It's important you know the scriptures. And when you read your word of God and you have your devotion, you ask God, reveal yourself to me, that I may know you. And the knowledge of God, you'll understand who God is and, and to view his holiness. And that will put you in good stead in having the right view or the right perspective of sin you see, and the atonement. And I believe then John 1, 9 will be exercised a whole lot more. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Rather than dwelling in the, in the, in the filthy pool of unrighteousness, go and confess your sins and have them cleansed. I'll speak a little bit more about different characters and the holiness of God. Job saw the holiness of God in his trials and afflictions and troubles. And God had a purpose from bringing that man through the incredible trials that he went through. And I think trials that we perhaps cannot relate to. Um, and when he waited for the voice of God, when God showed himself to Job, Job eventually came to that point, and I believe he came to this particular point when he could see um, the holiness of God, God upon his throne, understanding that his, his faith was in, in the God of heaven, the holy God of heaven on his throne, and God knew what he was doing. And Job, when he came to himself, he said, I am vile. 
I abhor myself. I repent with dust and ashes. I've spoken once and I'll speak no more because I have nothing to say to God. And he said, I'll lay my hand upon my mouth. And so Job's response to the holiness of God is self-abasement, humility, and further worship. Not this, but this. And it seems like the more righteous the person is described, the more we find them trembling in humility before God's presence. When we consider Habakkuk and his complaint toward God, when he saw all the injustices around, around him in his nation and the degradation sweeping across his homeland, the prophet Habakkuk. He was so offended by this, as we sometimes can relate to this, he was so offended by the degradation around him that he went to his watchtower and he complained to God. Has anyone here ever gone to God in prayer and complained? Can we have a show of hands? Is that all right? Three hands, four hands. Come on. Come on. He complained to God. He said, God, you're so holy not to behold iniquity. How can you stand by and allow all this injustice to go by? God, you're so holy, how can you allow the homosexuals to thrive in the way they are? Okay? And everything that we see all around us. Has God lost control? And when God appeared to Habakkuk, and when Habakkuk came to his senses and saw, ah, yes, the Lord is on his throne. Regardless of what's happening here, behold, there's a throne in heaven. And when Habakkuk came to that, he said, my lips quivered and my belly trembled. And rottenness entered into my bones. What What was Habakkuk doing? He humbled himself before a God who knew what he was doing. He worshipped God in humility. And we saw that, we read that tonight of Isaiah. Remember Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he came to that conviction and he confessed it. Are you a man of unclean lips? Or a woman of unclean lips? Some of you straight away, you're you're thinking swearing. Well, it goes beyond swearing. When we see the holiness of God, we'll realise the filth, as I did many years ago, and confessed it and forsook it. He said, woe is me. He cast judgment upon himself, saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a people of unclean lips. 
because he saw the Lord high and lifted up in his holiness. Moses and the Israelites were so enthralled, so, uh, in, in, so much in rejoicing and praise because they were released finally out of bondage. And they sang the song, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness? Fearful in praises, doing wonders, opening the Red Sea. Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness? God is holy, that will never change. Hannah, when she prayed her prayer in humility, she prayed, There is none holy as the Lord. There is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. There is none holy as the Lord. Holiness will drive us to prayer. Ezekiel, I quoted earlier, Ezekiel 128. He said, um, after seeing the holiness of God and the throne of God there, he said, this was an appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, Ezekiel said, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one that spoke. You see, falling on our face is an act of worship. Because not necessarily physically, I don't want anyone falling over on your faces, but it's an act of worship. It's an act of humility. It's a posture of humility. And I do think when we worship God, we need to have some posture of humility. I don't think we ought to worship God and just sort of, you know, praise God, you know. Or just slouch in our seat in boredom to hallelujah Jesus. I don't think that's a posture of humility. I don't think we ought to be pious either. And you better note also that this falling on the face is not falling backwards. That's demonic. That's another spirit. You know, falling backwards, out of control, doing things that are just out of control. That's not an act of worship. I think our examples are clear. So Ezekiel says, I fall upon my face and I heard the voice of one that spoke. The 24 elders fell down before him. We read that in Revelation 4. They fell down before him. They cast their crowns before him. They fell down on their faces before him. And even the seraphims of heaven, these six-winged incredible creatures with eyes before and behind, before and behind, and, and, uh, and all that symbology of, of great power and great, great position, whose sole existence is to dwell 
before the throne of God, above and around it, giving honour and praise and glory to him in perpetual worship forever and ever. These angels continually covered their face and their feet in the posture of humility before the Lord. And the Bible reads there, above it stood the seraphims, each had six wings and with twain they covered their face, with twain they covered their feet and with twain they did fly. And one cried to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. So God's throne is authoritative. God's throne is a place of worship. God's throne is a holy throne. For God is holy. And let's finish with 1 Peter, please. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, there in verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. It is written, be ye holy. For the Lord is holy. Let's bow for prayer. The pastor will come and and, uh, close in a moment as he wishes to. But if God has spoken to you tonight in some way and has exposed some sin or has in using some scripture, uh, blessed your heart. And we're not just talking about uh, information, but holy instruction. If God has spoken to you in some way, that's between you and God. And nothing was said to be meant, nothing was said today that has been meant to be offensive but rather to give glory to God's word and to bring glory to his, his holy name. And if God has spoken to you, would you spend a moment in prayer and get those things right and purpose in your heart to fix your gaze upon the throne of God um, in, in times in life. And to remember the way that we ought to worship him in purity and in holiness. Let's pray.
Church, as we're in a mode of prayer, the piano can begin to play, and we're going to just have a time of invitation. Perhaps this evening, as um, our missionary was preaching, you firstly were rem- you're reminded to actually gaze upon the throne of God. Maybe you're going through a situation, or you're you're seeing the environment of the world that we live in, and maybe disheartened and you've forgotten to gaze upon the throne of God. Maybe that's you tonight and um, while the piano is playing, the Lord is just dealing with you about that. Or maybe it's just simply this, you've not approached the throne of God like you should. You've not seen it as authoritative or as a place of worship and you've been flippant and approaching it without the the sober reality of the holiness of God. And however the, the Lord is working in your heart, I pray that you would just seek Him out this evening. And I want to open the altar tonight if uh, the Lord spoke to your heart and you just want to just um, pray and, and have that posture of humility before Him. Now I want to invite you to come as, as the Lord leads you tonight as a piano place.